Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Catechism. At BRCC, we believe that our catechism is a useful tool to help us understand and grow in our faith. But why? Find out in our series, Catechism. We're uh, this week going to be starting a little four-week series that's going to run the entire month of July. And what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be looking at the first four questions in our catechism, which are just really basic questions regarding uh, the gospel and regarding who we are and who God is and, and what we believe. Uh, so we're going to be covering these four questions. And I remind you each week as well, on Wednesday, the full, not just the question and answer of the catechism, but all kinds of study materials are put out. And in the booklet where you've got your discussion guide for this week, it reminds you that that will be happening on Wednesday each week uh, on the blog, on the website. It's dropping out the questions, and there's all kinds of other verses I won't even bring up today, other questions, other materials, even songs you can sing that you can participate and go along as we are uh, kind of renewing and looking at the catechism, again, at least these first four questions. So today, I'm going to begin by looking at 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And Psalm 16, 11. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 and Psalm 16, 11. As always, uh, the, the verses themselves are there in your booklet and they'll be up here on the screen. All the verses I'll bring up will be on the screen. So hear now the words of your Creator and your Redeemer, the one true living God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then in Psalm 16, we read, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Today we're going to be talking about what is our purpose, and purpose is essential for any individual or family or organization to understand. If, if you're going to be successful, if you're going to achieve what your goal is, you have to know your purpose. And every person inherently, there's something in us that wants to know, why am I here? What, what is the reason that I exist? One way you can see this is a few years ago, Rick Warren, a pastor in California, to help his church during Lent, he wrote basically 40 little devotions that he put together in a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And it sold 32 million copies in 85 languages. It's one of the biggest selling hardback books in all of history was The Purpose Driven Life. And the reason is because people looked at that and said, I want to know what my purpose is. How do I have my life line up with my purpose? And that is an excellent question. So we begin our catechism with this question, and we're going to look at this idea today. What is our purpose? Or another way of saying that is, why are we here? Why do you and I exist? So we're going to jump in and we'll kind of unpack this in the coming weeks as well as in the first four we kind of lay out where we're going uh, in understanding the Scripture. So the first thing to understand regarding our purpose 
is we were created to glorify God. Created to glorify God. Now, the first key idea, which actually comes up in the question as we put it, is that we are created. Notice as we put up our first question in the Catechism, and this is actually, we didn't create this one on our own. This is from Westminster Question 1. It says, why did God create humans? So the question has an assumption, and that assumption is that you and I are created. But actually, even if we didn't put the word create in there, to ask why we are here assumes you are created. If you are nothing other than the product of random, purposeless chance and evolution, the question, why am I here, is nonsensical. There is no reason why you're here. If you were not created, there is no purpose. None whatsoever. You can try and get around this. I remember in seminary I had to read essays by people, and they tried to get around that quite valiantly, but it was a pitiful effort because at the end of the day, if you are here and you were not created, there is no purpose. Eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow you're going to die, and that's the end of it all. And there is no purpose in life whatsoever. Now, most people don't like that because if you follow that philosophy, we'll end up with a living hell on earth. But the reality is, it's one of two ways. Either you were created and therefore there is purpose, or you were not created and there is no purpose, no right, no wrong, no meaning, no nothing other than just existence until you die. Now, this is why not only our catechism here, but scripture and the early creeds of the church and historical catechisms begin with this idea. So notice in Genesis 1.1, what's the very first thing we read? In the beginning, God did what? Created the heavens and the earth. And then we get a couple of chapters describing that creation. In the, uh, one of the earliest creeds in the church, and in fact, several creeds begin with basically this phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, what? creator of heaven and earth. It's the first thing we state that we believe. And so we begin our catechism with, why did God create humans? Because this is the fundamental fact of our existence. You and I were created. You are not the product of blind, random chance. And in fact, friends, just to be clear, nobody lives like they are. It's impossible to live that way. Anybody who tells me that, give me five minutes with them and I will show you ways they are living as if they were created, not as if they evolved by blind, random chance. Because we humans can't actually consistently live that other way. And so it is the fundamental fact for us, and the good news in that is, that means you do have a purpose. There is an answer to the question that cries out from within you as to why I am here. And our purpose is we were created to glorify God. So why did God create humans? To glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul's text here, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
Paul is telling us here, notice he says, whatever you do, any possible activity that the human mind can conceive, it needs to be for the glory of God. That's as broad a statement as you can get regarding our purpose. And this isn't just true of human beings, it's actually true of all creation. All creation exists for the glory of God. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, we get this vision into heaven and we see the four living creatures around God's throne. We've talked about those before in the old gospel symbols. And there's a song that rises up in worship to God, and it is this in Revelation 4:11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. And Paul the Apostle says something similar in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So notice here in Revelation 4, it says, God's worthy of glory for this reason. Because everything was created by him and everything has its continuing existence because of him. Paul even expands that one further and says, look, if you exist, you came from God, you exist by God, and your purpose is moving back towards God. From him, through him, to him is all things. So what this means is God and his glory is the center of all of creation. And not just human beings, but if anything in all of creation is oriented towards something other than, the, uh, than God and His glory, that thing is twisted and perverted. Let me say that again, and I know those are strong words. If anything in all of creation is oriented towards anything other than the glory of God, that thing is twisted and perverted perverted. It's not oriented the way it was actually made to be. Everything is created with a purpose, and by definition, if you are not operating the way you were made, you're twisted and you're perverted. You're, you're, you're bent off and you are bent in the wrong direction. And notice the Apostle Paul tells us in this text, it's not just that we glorify God, we glorify God in everything. This is our purpose in action. Notice there in verse 31 again, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So what Paul is not saying is, here's your purpose. Make sure once a week you get together with some other Christians, you sing some songs, you pray some prayers, and then you go on with life. That is not what Paul is saying. He's not even saying, get together with some other Christians on Sunday and then make sure you get in a connect group during the week. That, that's not what Paul's saying either. Both of those are good and right things, and both of those are part of how we glorify God. But what Paul is saying is you glorify God in everything, whatever you do. And it's kind of interesting because he's actually in a discussion here of whether Christians can eat meat sacrificed to idols in pagan temples back in Corinth. Seems like a simple question. For Paul, it runs on for three chapters. And at the end of it, he says, here's the operating uh, assumption you have to have. Here's what has to drive your answer to that question and every other question. What will bring glory to God? 
Can I eat this? What will bring glory to God? Because whatever you're doing, eating, drinking, any other activity, the prime question is, does this bring glory to God? And so what this means is, glorifying God is not just some specific concrete activity. Rather, it is an orientation of life. It is a way of approaching every activity in life that I am living it before the face of God with a view to making God central and bringing glory to Him in all that we think, all that we desire, and all that we do. That's what Paul's telling us. Everything in all of life is to be lived with an orientation towards I'm living before the face of God, and I want God to be pleased, and I want God to be glorified in everything I think, everything I speak, and in every action that I undertake. So that's the first part of what we're saying. Now, if you just think for a moment before I even move on to the second part, that is radically against what you're told by our culture every day. You are told your purpose is self-fulfillment. So am I. You are told your goal is turning everything in on yourself. And right off the bat, we're told, no, your goal is about something outside yourself. And in fact, what we're going to see is to turn inward to find purpose is to implode. Because you were not made that way. It's the same thing if I take an engine that was made to run on gasoline and I pour chocolate milk in it. It's going to destroy the engine. It was not made to run on chocolate milk. It was made to run on gasoline, okay? But at the same time, if I pour gasoline into myself, what happens? It's not good for me. Chocolate milk might be really good for me, right? See, the difference is not the, the milk or the gas. The difference is how, was, how is this particular thing made to operate, and if you're made to operate on gas, chocolate milk's bad for you. If you're made to operate where milk is good for you, gasoline is bad for you. You were not made, nor was I, to be focused on self, but rather to be focused and oriented on God. And to the extent that I'm not, and friends, let me be clear, all of us to some extent or another are not doing that. All of us. So it's not that Christians are those who always, in every way, live for the glory of God. We all fall short every day in many ways. But we are called to say, but whenever I'm getting off in that orientation and I'm turning it on something other than God, I'm twisting and perverting and breaking down who I am. And this leads to the second point, which is that we are created to enjoy God forever. So notice there's two parts in the catechism, and this is why we bring up the second verse. Why did God create humans? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And these aren't really two purposes, it's really one purpose together. Glorifying God produces joy in you and me. That is how this works. And so the psalmist tells us in Psalm 1611, you've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So notice the result of glorifying God is joy 
for you and me. The psalmist tells us that we were created to know, love, and glorify God. And if we are given to this pursuit, it brings overflowing joy into my own life. So this is not a second thing. Well, I seek glorifying God and I'm running off as a separate track trying to find joy. No, I'm oriented towards glorifying God and the overflow. The fruit of that is joy because it's what you were made for. And it's what I was made for. And so it naturally produces the fruit of joy. See, what the psalmist is saying is everything that I, and he's telling it to us, everything that we long for is found in God himself. And it has no other ultimate source. Whatever human beings long for, whether that is relationship, whether that is intimacy, whether that is knowing and being known, whether that is true pleasure, all of those things find their source in God. And they do not find it anywhere else. Because the nature of all creation is that the only doorway to true joy is found in God himself. Every other joy you or I experience is ultimately rooted in God himself, and it can only find its fulfillment in relation to God. Whatever else it is, the moment we start severing it from God, even if it's a good thing, the joy will start to diminish. And it'll be, have you ever noticed you get something and you're really excited and happy about it, and it's all nice and shiny, and then a couple days later, what, what is it? See, we see this with kids, right? You, you buy them a bunch of stuff on like Christmas morning or their birthday or whatever, and they are so excited and it is everything. And then what, what do you, where do you find the things like two days later? Right, they're in the junk heap somewhere, they've been broken, they're forgotten, and they've moved on to something else. Well, you know what? That's exactly what you and I are like as adults. We're a little bit better at covering that up, but it's pretty much the same way. And the reason for that is those things are only channels of joy from God at best. And if you cut them off from their source, they dry up very quickly. Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, theologian and thinker in early American history, said this, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. And what Edwards was laying a hold of and grasping here is saying, every other thing in your life that you say, this brings me joy, it only brings you joy because it's a beam that has come from the sun that is God. It is a shadow that is being cast by the reality that is God. And it is a stream that is but flowing back into God himself. And therefore, if you try to cut it off from that, rather than being joy, rather than being rest is the word that, that Augustine would have used, what it becomes is it becomes dry. It becomes like dust in our mouth. It ceases to produce joy for us. Now, what this again means for us, and this ties back to glorifying God, is the path to joy in life is not found in self-fulfillment 
but rather in turning away from self to God. Have you ever thought, one of the sayings that Jesus made that's recorded in all the Gospels numerous times, this is a very common saying, I'll just give you the one in Matthew 16, 24, and 25, but Jesus says this to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to uh, save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Do you understand? Jesus is teaching here by paradox. He's saying there are people all over and they are trying to find themselves. And if you do that, you lose yourself. They are trying to build their own life and if you do that, you lose life. But there are those who will lose themselves and orient themselves towards me and the kingdom. And even if that means the cross, even if that means suffering, even if that means death, they realize that in giving up their life, they're finding life. And they realize that in denying themselves, they're actually finding the ultimate purpose and joy for themselves. They are realizing that even if they lose their life, they are finding life. So paradoxically, what Jesus, the creator, is telling you and me is a self-centered life ultimately saps true joy. But a God-centered life bears the fruit of deep, soul-satisfying, unshakable joy. See, what this means is, too often we think in our culture, well, will I have joy tomorrow? And if we're honest, the question I need to know is, well, what's tomorrow going to be like? Is it going to be a good day or a bad day? And Jesus would tell you and me, you're already in trouble. You're already, that's a sign you're off on the wrong path. Because God does not change. And if your joy is rooted in knowing and loving and glorifying God, tomorrow may have tears, but there will still be deep abiding trust and joy and rest in God because he does not change. Circumstances change. God does not. And the good news is this joy that arises from a God-centered life is eternal. Notice as we put it in the catechism, we're drawing this from Psalm 1611 is, why did God create us? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Not just momentarily, not just right now, but forever. The psalmist tells us, you've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. In the New Testament, this becomes the verse on the day of Pentecost that Peter preaches from to say the resurrection was promised. The Messiah was coming. There is eternal life, and it is eternal pleasures at the right hand of God. Any joy you and I would find in this world is only temporal, if we're finding it apart from God. But the joy of a God-centered life is eternal. It not only doesn't change with the shifting circumstances on this earth, it's even going to survive death itself. See, this kind of goes back, we're going full circle to coming from the beginning. If you don't understand that we were created to love and know and glorify and enjoy God forever, whatever other purpose you would come up with, and if you and I weren't created in that fashion, it all ends at death. It all ends at death. And we are trying to get around that in our culture. 
And the good news is, you know, my, my dad and I were talking the other day about this. A hundred years ago, the average lifespan was like 60-something years here in our country. It's now like 84 or 85. The bad news is it's like 84 or 85. It means it's still going to end. It might be a little bit longer, but it is still going to end. Guaranteed. You might not pay taxes. You might get away with everything else in this life. Death is coming. Will your purpose survive that? Will what you find your joy in survive that? What Jesus is telling us is if your joy is found in God, then yes, it survives even death. And in fact, here's even better news. The, the good news that the psalmist is saying about this joy and these eternal pleasures, our joy in heaven will not only not decrease, it will not even stay the same. The joy of glorifying God will never end, but will expand throughout eternity because your capacity and my capacity to glorify and enjoy God will be growing through endless ages. The longer you and I exist in the presence of God, the more capacity you will have to know and glorify and enjoy God, and the more that I will have. So joy will not decrease as it always does here. It will magnify. It will grow. And your eternity and my eternity, if we are in Christ, is one that says it will be ever-expanding, ever-growing, ever-more-satisfying experience of knowing and glorifying and enjoying God. That's a good picture of eternity. And it's one of the things, if I could just step aside for a second, we've got the, you know, these pictures, you know, that what's eternity going to be like, and I'm floating on the cloud, plucking a harp, and, and you look at it and say, that, that looks like it might be fun for like the first five minutes. I don't know, but you know, then it might get boring. That's because that's not what the scripture tells it's, it's going to be like at all. Friend, heaven is going to be anything other than boring. The reason you and I get bored is because in this life, all sources of joy, we end up cutting them off from God. When you are there at the true source, boredom will never, ever, ever be your problem for even a second. Because in every moment, your capacity to experience joy is going to be growing and growing and growing without ever stopping. And that's good news for you and for me. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean for us? Two questions. Number one, do I understand that I was created to glorify God? Part of the good news this morning is you are not a random cosmic accident. You were created with a purpose. You were created and designed lovingly by God. And we, of all of creation, only human beings can say this, we were designed in the image of God, which means we have a capacity to glorify God and to know God and to love God and to experience God that nothing else in all creation has. You were specifically designed to glorify God. And our problem is not that God is not ultimately glorifiable and that he is not ultimately enjoyable. Our problem is we keep reorienting ourselves off to something else. That becomes our issue. And so that other goal, any other goal, whatever it is, it can be good things. 
I, I have a huge goal in my life that is important to me, which is family. Okay, I, I love being around my family. But if I cut that off from God, it's ultimately self-destructive. And it goes against my design. It's like a stream that I've cut off from its source. And it is bound to dry up. So remember again, when I'm asking this question, do I understand I was created to glorify God? I'm not asking, do I have a piece of life that is devoted to God? That I... I have my my little piece of each day or my little piece of each week that is carved out for God. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm asking is, do I have an orientation so that all of life is lived to glorify God and is lived, therefore, in obedience to His Word and His will? See, all of this, like God's law, which is not popular in our culture, but it flows from this. God knows how you and I were designed And his law is him telling us, you were designed for this, you were not designed for that. Therefore, this will bring you joy and rest. This is going to bring you sorrow and restlessness, ultimately, because of how you were designed. So glorifying God is about me submitting all of my desires, my thoughts, and my actions to him. And then out of that, seeking to serve him and other people in all I do. Because again, my orientation is outward, not inward. And that means it's first of all towards God. But Jesus said, well, what's the second greatest commandment? Love others because they're in the image of God. And that outward orientation will produce glory to God and joy for me. So the questions, have I devoted my life to God and his glory? Have I consciously done that? Because here is the, the bad news, and part of why we did what we, we did this morning. See, I, I love Ollie. I love holding my grandson. I, he cracks me up because I think he's going to be into everything when he starts walking here soon. But my grandson is born bent, just like I was, and just like you are. And I'm bent towards not glorifying God, but seeking what I want. And anybody who's, G.K. Chesterton quipped that original sin is the only Christian doctrine that can be empirically proven. And anybody who's ever argued with me about this, I'm like, you don't have kids, do you? Because I never said, this is the week Linda and I will teach them to lie. This is the week we will teach them to be selfish. We never had to do that. That's, and and I can, don't ask my parents because it would be embarrassing for me, but they could tell you they didn't teach me to be that way either. That was natural. That was my bent. So have I made a conscious decision to devote my life to God and his glory because it's natural thing as it wants to turn back in on itself? Have I devoted myself to that? Do I daily reorient myself to live for God and his glory? Because when I wake up tomorrow morning, there is a part of me that naturally wants to go out there and say, everybody serve me. Everybody live for me. Everybody be oriented towards what I want. But I have to wake up tomorrow and say, no. What's good for me and for everyone else is if I'm oriented towards God and I'm oriented towards the will of God. And so, Lord, today, reorient me, work me away from being turned to myself and turn me back towards you. Is that the way I'm approaching this? Do I regularly, day after day after day, say, Lord, 
orient me back towards you. I want to glorify you and enjoy you. Is every area of my life, personal, family, social, work, financial, entertainment, sexual, pick, pick whatever, whatever area of life you can think of, my morals, whatever, are they submitted to God and His will so that it brings Him glory? Or are they evidence that this is what I want to do? This is the way I want to live. So that's the first question, because we cannot achieve our purpose. And let me be clear, if you're here and you're not a Christian, first off, we're really glad to have you here. But secondly, again, being a Christian is not that we're perfect. This is why Christ has died. None of us do this perfectly. None of us even come close to doing it perfectly. We fall short of this every day. Christ, I, I love the song we sang this morning, my sins they are many, but his mercy is more. If you're sitting here and saying, you know, not only is every area of my life that you just mentioned not oriented towards God, none of them are. Okay, well, the bad news is that's self-destructive. The good news is Jesus is here to rescue you from that, and he's here to rescue me from that. And so the gospel is that his mercy is far greater than all of our sin. Please don't think that being a Christian means, well, we're better than everybody else. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is me admitting first off, I'm the chief problem in the universe. And God's the answer in the universe. That's what it means to be a believer. Second question then for, for this morning is, do I understand that true eternal joy is found in God alone? See, this is that flip side that is so good. We think when we first hear this, that what that means is my existence is going to be joyless. But that is the exact opposite of the truth. A life focused on God rather than self does not sap joy. It gives joy. It is the source of joy. It ever renews our joy. So do I understand that all of joy finds its ultimate source in God? Here's the reality. You can be here this morning, be an atheist, say, I, with every breath I have and every thought I have, deny the very existence of God. I don't believe He exists. I believe I am a random mutation of cosmic matter, and that is why I'm here. And then when you look at some person you love and you experience that love and joy, that is from God. There is no other place to get joy. It is His gift to you even while you deny him. There is no other place. And what you are experiencing when you do that is the goodness of God. That, that thing, when I look at my wife and I say, I know and I am known. And I love and I am loved. And we are one. That is from God. Whether we acknowledge God's existence or not, it would be a universe of no joy if it were not for the overflowing joy of God. So what that means for us, particularly if you're here as a believer, do I consistently trace all other joys in my life back to God, or do I stop with the medium that is bringing me joy, the thing that God is using to bring me joy, and never go back to Him? Because if I stop at that intermediate thing, it's only a matter of time until it's going to dry up. No matter how good the thing is. 
This afternoon, I will have all nine of my grandchildren around me. That is going to be really good joy. But if I do not trace that back to God, it will cease to be a joy, even though that's a very good thing. It might be in the music you like, the food you like to eat, sports or some entertainment, poetry, like whatever it is, think about what that thing is. If you don't trace that back to God, it's ultimately getting twisted, it's ultimately getting perverted, it's ultimately getting cut off from its source. The source from which it draws is the ocean of God. The, the source from which this light is illuminating is the Son of God himself. To go back to Edward's words, am I recognizing that? Because if I'm not, I'm actually cutting off my own joy. So as a believer, are there any areas where I am trying to seek joy apart from God? One way to look at sin is that's ultimately what sin is. Rather than finding my joy in God, it's the attempt to find my joy in anything other than God. Whatever that thing is. Again, it can be a bad thing, but it can even be a good thing that I've just blown out of proportion. And the the desire to seek joy in something else is always going to land you and me in the ditch. So am I doing that in any other area? Um, because that's what sin is, is it's ultimately finding my purpose and joy in anything other than God. So ask yourself that as you're sitting here and you're thinking about it, because what God wants for you and me, and please hear this, I hope you leave this, God wants you to be oriented towards Him in all of life, and he wants that not because, please understand, glorifying God, you don't make God any better. You and I don't make God any happier. God, as Tony said, starting the meeting, God needs nothing outside of himself. He didn't make you because he was lonely, he was lacking, there was something else there. That's not why he did it. God wants you to glorify him because it's good for you. He doesn't need it. You and I need it desperately with everything in us. So we're going to stand together, and we're going to close in prayer. And I want to encourage you to pray along with me and to ask God in any area that the Lord might have just have identified in your heart, Lord, here's an area where I'm not seeking to glorify you or where I'm realizing I think I'm, I'm trying to bury a shaft and get my joy from here rather than from you. Let's ask the Lord to reveal and work on those things. Holy triune God, you are the epicenter of the entire universe. You are self-existent and you are eternal and all of creation from the farthest stars to the smallest atom and we ourselves all of it exists by your will and for your glory. In the beginning, you created everything that is, everything visible and everything invisible, in heaven and on earth. And out of all of that, Lord, you made us in your image with a unique capacity to know and love and glorify and enjoy you. Father, this is how we were made when we sprung from your fingertips. But Father, we turned from you, the source of life. 
We tried to find our purpose in life within ourselves. Rather than worshiping you as the only God, we proclaimed that we were God's. And in so doing, it ushered in disillusionment, destruction, and death. But Father, this morning we say thanks be to God that our Lord Jesus has opened to us again the door of life and of salvation so that we can glorify and enjoy you once again. So Lord, today I pray that if anyone here has never embraced Christ, that you would open their eyes and that you would draw them to him. Lord, not because you need this, Lord, but because they do. I pray for compassion for anyone here. Father, it's a sad thing when we wander in our own paths rather than partaking of the feast that you have spread out before us. It's a sad thing when we try to go our own way rather than following after you. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you open eyes to see and love and embrace you. And Father, I pray for us and even for the kids who are upstairs that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us all, that we would turn from our paltry attempts at self-fulfillment and instead find life in forsaking our own and fulfillment in serving you and freedom in being your bondservant and joy in walking humbly with you. Father, I ask that you would fill us now so that we would truly glorify and enjoy you both now and into eternity where it will expand forever and ever. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, I'm going to conclude actually with a word of doxology uh, that includes a benediction in it, but this is a word of praise to God. This is from the book of Jude, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. This is how Jude ends. And I encourage you to glorify God along with me in these words and to receive his blessing. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault, and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. And those who are under the blessing of God say, Amen. Amen. Go forth to glorify God and to enjoy Him this week. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.